Welcome to Automation Advocates, a show where we will talk about automation, manufacturing, and meet some of the personalities that are involved in the industry and get their perspectives. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy creating. Thanks, and here's the show. Back again, Justin and Tyler. Third one in a row, I believe. You are correct. I think you might be promoted to new (laughs) co-host. I don't know what happened to the tri-hosts, but I got a new co-host. Um, how you been, man? Busy? Busy. Busy. How about you? Much the same. I got to spend some time in Canada with my friends up there across the border. I tell you what, business meetings that flip-flop between English and French, I've gotten really good at just nodding and smiling. <laughs> um, but what's cool is when you're there and you start hearing them talk about like products, you're able to pull it up. And put it on the TV or the team's meeting while they're good. And, and it's like you almost understood what they were after, but not. So I was pretty proud about that. Um, We're on the eve of Snowmageddon here. T-minus like four hours until the storm of the century in Minneapolis. This is going to be the one they talk about, like the, the Halloween blizzard of 90-whatever. I tell you what, if it does come and show up, I'm getting in my truck and I'm going to the ski hill. And I'm going to snowboard my face off. Be there with you. Good. I love it. I love it. Because we've had a kind of a rough winter here lately. Totally unrelated to automation, but it's been rough. It's been rough. Uh, So just before I hit the record button, I was about to tell you I bought a new 3D printer last week. Oh. It's on the way. It's the Creality Hallet, Halo, H-A-L-O-T, um, light source driven resin printer. Oh, have you had one of those before? No. So I'm super anxious to see how it works out. I, uh, I've seen the details of what people are able to get out of it from a, cause you don't have the, like the gooey drip off on the sides kind of a thing. So I'm really curious. And then with the package from Creality, who didn't sponsor this show, uh, I bought a cleaning and curing gizmo too. So you like take your part, put it in the cleaning, curing gizmo, dump some alcohol, I think, or acetone. I don't know. Hit the go button. A couple minutes later, you take that stuff out and then it turns on the UV lights to harden the material. Looks cool. Looks super cool. It's in the mail. So maybe when I first turn it on, I'll have to have a uh, unboxing party and we can do some cool. Have you been printing anything? Well, this is this is funny because last week I also b- bought a 3D printer as well. Because you were in the market. I remember we talked a little bit. Yep. So there's this uh, Elegoo yeah. Neptune Pro 3 or whatever. What is that thing? Um, it like... I don't know. It's it's FDM. I see it right FDM. here. FDM. It's got uh, you know the dual driven Z axes and direct drive. Has all the supposedly it's the take it out of the box and print option. So did you get? So I'm looking at this thing. They come in a pile of different sizes. So there's everything from a 200 by 280 up to. 420 millimeter by 500 yeah, huge yeah i just got the it's like the 200 by 200 one or whatever sure sure 
You know, that looks an awful lot like the Ender 3 that I've got, but not quite. Yeah, do you have the S1, or which one do you have? Uh, I don't know. It's only got the, uh, I think it's a single screw on the Z, so one motor for each. But it's got the, this actually looks like the little pendant thing's movable, like you can pull it out, it's on a tether. Mine's fixed, right? So mm-hmm. what you got's what you got. I think it's a V3 Ender. Little guy, though. Just, okay. I don't know, plates, what is that, eight inches-ish? Big enough for most things, but still FDM. Yeah, that was, so I, w- I was telling you off the air, like that was, I had bought one before that, and I'm relatively new to 3D printing. I've messed with like three three different ones at this point now. Sure, sure. But this one I bought was like I spent a week like on every single tutorial podcast YouTube video. Yep. Could not get the thing to line out. Like sure. it, so I've I eventually just sent it back, but it was the most frustrating thing ever cuz all I wanted like it didn't even print its own test print correctly. Oh no. So it's just like okay, this is this is no good. Yeah. That's terrible. So the only drawback of the resin one, so the one I got, print size 127 by 80 by 160. So small. But when you're in the market for Dungeons & Dragons minifigures, <laughs> I know a guy. Um, That's the only, like, that was the, the hesitation. I was like, ooh. But then I think it was a Valentine's Day sale. And I was like, eh. Got to do it. Got to do it. So that's uh, not why we're talking today. Um, We're going to do a little picking on some stuff. Um, Some of it tied to maybe automation in construction and trades. But then as we were sitting at lunch watching the guy move the uh, food boxes from the truck to the freezer, kind of spawned some thoughts. The world's been going crazy over AI the last three weeks. We'll probably revisit some of that. But... uh, yeah, so the, the first one I want to talk about was a painting robot. So it was an AMR. Uh, and again, I've got a paint gun. I've painted a couple of things back in my day. Um, I've painted machines with not enough masking on, right? I've made some poor <laughs> life choices, as have you, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, nothing better than coughing up flat black for a couple of days. But um, the robot I saw, and I'll, I'll try to find a link, it was an AMR with a little cobot on the end of it, right, effectively, uh, with a with a spray gun and a five-gallon bucket. And, it, and at face value, I think, man, that's really neat. Scan the room. Go ahead, paint the room. The problem was the overspray. So when I watched this thing run, I go, okay, now two inches of your ceiling, which was white, is now blue, and two inches of your floor is blue. So when I think about the practicality in construction, I go, well, for priming, super good, right? Not good for finish work, though, which I know when we talked about it over lunch, there's just some of those things that people still like the details and the the, the precision of the human hand can't can't be beat in some of these cases, right? Yeah, there's. Some of that reminds. Have you ever seen this comic called XKCD? Yes, yes. So there's like this one where it shows a graph of like 
things I want to spend time automating. And that like that's one axis on the graph. And then there's the other part of it is, you know, amount of time spent automating versus time it would take me to just manually do the task. Mm -hmm. And there's like this just dramatic line upwards to the right of time spent automating versus like me just do the task is like pretty straight, straight across at a much lower slope. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of that where you can do it, but the amount of time that you're going to spend dealing with all the, you know, dynamic elements of it are, are not worth it sometimes. Right. Right. Um, I did an inspection machine one time for the automotive industry and it was at a tier supplier, right? And, and the premise was these parts were cast and we were looking for pinholes or other defects that, while look cosmetic, also had some sort of implication into the use of this part, right? And I remember when the line would run, so the way they did it currently, prior to us automating it, uh, parts would come off the machine tool, they'd go back on a conveyor, and every six seconds someone at the end of the line had to pick up that part look at the outside look at the inside for visual defects we were able to do it with a 3d camera right so a line scan camera looking for these defects we would find 15 to 20 bad parts in a row and of course if you know anything about metallurgy and you go okay well you poured it out of the same batch clearly you've got a problem with your metal and the customer goes well when it sees a bunch of a r- in a row that are wrong, can you loosen up the parameters so we can pass a couple? <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, I can do whatever you want me to. I don't know that your customer appreciates me doing that, right? Like, but at the end of the day, like I had to put a, I put a slider on the graphical interface that said less sensitive, more sensitive, right? And I would fudge the, the numbers and the, the inspection criteria, but like, holy cow. But again, like, even when that thing was dialed in, the gal at the end of the line was still better than that camera. Oh, yeah. Like, it just lights out. She knew. She knew everything about those parts. Well, and that's my, a potentially longer topic here. But, I mean, I'm, I am and will always continue to be the fan in the camp of, like, if you have a good operator they are going to be more efficient and effective nine times out of 10. Like, and there, sure. there, there are some exceptions there. Like, um, you know, if you need like in an upset situation where like plants going down, you need to move a hundred things in a couple seconds to make it less bad. Um, you know, then there's for sure some times where that's going to save you. But like in, in the case you just gave, like an, an operator has all of the, that like built-in exception criteria that they they understand. Like here here are my bands of acceptability, and here's how I can do that. Right. It's not that you can't program a machine to do that, like you just said. Sure. It's just that I'm going to spend so much time building in all of these rules that it's it. You might as well have just kept the person there doing it. Which now, and and I didn't think about this until just now but you know as you see ai and all these other things machine learning and like they're trying to figure out this criteria but if the criteria is moving what do you do right like people can make those decisions and and one could make the argument terrible they shouldn't those those people shouldn't be in the equation but 
they are right. Some of that's still subjective. Um, well, because there's there's acceptable risk that you sure you call it risk. I mean, you could call it other things too, but you know, okay. Well, I I have ten of these ten thousand that are on the edge of acceptable. Like, um, are they still usable? Are they going to fit for whatever we're making? Like, right. probably. You know, right. Um, now, if we're doing a pharmaceutical line, like that's that's a case where like I don't I don't want any exception to that. Like right. it was always within temperature, it was always within spec, it was always, and that's part of why all the pharmaceutical life science world like is expensive because you have to document all of that, you submit it to the FDA here in America. Like all of this stuff adds to the complexity of what you're building because. The rules are fixed and thou shalt stay in the rules. Right. Um, but yeah, for a lot of the other things in manufacturing, there's there's that band. Well, and I think too, and, and that, that's an interesting point, right, is what is the acceptable risk? And, and that's up to the people making the stuff, right? But I would say, hey, if, you're, if your engine blows up in your car, and by blows up, stops working, right? Piston seize or whatever, not physical explosion like a bomb. That's probably an okay risk if, you know, one in a hundred thousand have a defect, right? Pacemakers where the, the lot size is smaller, we'd prefer not to kill people, right? Like that, that's the, that's the risk level. Hey, you know, Tyler and Justin are on the side of the road in their truck looking stupid for a couple hours while a tow truck shows up versus, well, somebody's dead on the slab there. Like, different risk, right? Yep. I think uh, that was true in a past past career of mine when I spent time doing Department of Defense, Department of Energy stuff, right? Like, there, similarly, there was no, like, like, even the paint had a quality assurance procedure to it. There wasn't like, oh, we're just going to run to Home Depot and get some more Krylon flat. Nope. Sure didn't. Yeah, it's all the, like, mill spec. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, no, I, I think that's a that's an interesting one. Now, on the flip side, so we make fun of the painting robot, but you've seen the, like, the concrete 3D printers that can print up, like, the igloo houses? Yeah. I think that's awesome. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah, I think there's I think there's places to use it. And I think that's I think that's this like new frontier that we're coming into is like where do you use all this stuff? Where do you use AI? Like there are there are places in which it makes sense. And then they're like but if you're gonna bet the farm on I'm gonna have AI configure and run my whole plant, like you're you're gonna end up with what we have today, you're gonna end up in a bad spot. Sure, sure. So, I mean, like um, a conversation I've had before, like the whole self-driving car thing. Yeah. Um, like it puts everybody in a really weird spot because if the car is driving through all the normal everyday stuff. Yep. Um, so, you know, whatever, you're sitting there playing swippy swipey on your phone while your car is driving you to work. Yeah. Um, and so like the only time the car is not driving is when it doesn't know what to do. So you're, you're potentially going to create this whole generation of people where they only like their only opportunity to drive is like when it's 
up here, whiteout conditions. You can't see the road. <laughs> the worst time to ever drive. The, it's icy. Like sure, yeah. Here, why the computer doesn't know what to do. Good luck. <laughs> and so, like, I think that's some of the the issue with like over automating things is, um, okay. So you've created this world where the plant runs itself. Yeah. Um, it's gonna start to fall down. You now have somebody sitting at the operator console who. Are only they're only reporting the news like they 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 have not ever really run the plant because the right. plant is running the plant. They watched it on a YouTube video once on how to run the plant. Yeah, but press this button, the plant will run itself. Right. So whereas like a lot of the operators I've got to work with, um, you know they're they're a pretty talented crew. I mean, you know they'll watch a line and like, oh okay, well that valve in this part of the plant's probably closed because that thing's dropping. Yep. And, you know, so again, all that like built in, like, well, is that acceptable risk? Is that, um, is that concerning? Like the slope of that line, like how fast is it moving? Um, I mean, all of those decisions the operator just made in that split second. Right. That again, we can do, but you got to program all of that. Like, okay, well, what's my rate of change? And, uh, you know, is it within this other bounds of whatever that I also had to program and, what are the conditions that this is happening under throughout the rest of the plant? Like, am I in a startup? In which case that's allowable, blah, blah, blah. Like you can make it do all of that, but you have to, you have to frame that up as, you know, here, Justin program all these parameters Right. Uh, where the operator went like, eh, no, that's, that's bad. That's not supposed to happen. So, well, and then there's the validation, right? So, I think about, and let's go back to the car example. Hey, we're driving along. And, and, and I always giggle, right, when when you see the, oh, we didn't run into that use case, right? Like, oh, the, the car pulled up on a buggy with a horse, and it has no idea what it is. Okay, I, I can accept that, right? But, again, now, now I have to go back and build that into my model to go, okay, here's what a horse and a buggy looks like in the 1 in 10 million miles of road you see that because you were crossing the middle of wisconsin cool right and, and i make the drive to and from here back back to uh see friends all the time so that's a normal thing like horse and buggy i i can train that model for you but i remember when we did a lot of the the software quality assurance and this is true in, in medical or, or you know nuclear you have to test for all of the things that your specification said you were going to do Oh, yeah. So now you, okay, so what happens under a fault recovery? So now we have to go in and test and validate. Like, and so if you're going to have the models start to learn some of this stuff, like that validation of the learn, that that's a term. I don't even know where you'd start. Like, holy cow. Well, and it's all the weird, like, it's all the weird stuff that happens when you're driving. Like, last night, I uh, picked my kid up from her swim thing and there was a piece of copper pipe on the road like right in front Oof. of me. yeah so i mean it's not tall enough to be an obstruction but i can tell i can identify that it's copper and that it's put, sitting in a direction that would potentially puncture my tire or so, your radiator or something on the underside of your car and come through the floor if you caught the right wind gust or exactly so yeah. so i i identified that i stopped five feet short, jumped out of my car, moved it off to the side of the road and went on about my merry way. But like, there's, there's one of those cases like, okay, well you're going to train 
you're going to train a car on every potential obstacle that it's going to have in the in the midst of driving. Right. And then also to not not just identify it, but then to take action on it. Right. So, and I mean, we're talking about cars, but all of this applies to automation and manufacturing too. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. And, and, and I guess back to the, so here's an example in manufacturing. So my brother uh, is a machinist of sorts, right? And he's, he's learning, he's getting better. Um, and, and I think my friend Justin and I had this conversation a little bit, but he was saying, hey, they got this new guy who's the programmer, right? Big air quotes around programmer of the CNC machines. And so they had a part that was, I don't know, foot and a half long. My brother's describing this to me over Christmas. And they're doing some slotting and drilling holes and stuff. But the fixture, the clamp, is just your standard issue four-inch wide vise. Well, Mastercam didn't tell him he needed vices on both ends of this thing, right? So the part's chattering, it's walking, it's ripping out of the vise, right? The computer didn't know, right? It didn't tell you. Now, could we train it to do that? Sure. But also, I hope your tool and die makers understand how to properly secure parts, right? Like, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think back to the car piece, like, this is a bold statement. I'm a professional driver. <laughs> and I say that because of the number of miles that I put on in a year. Right? Okay. Like, That's probably fair. north of fifteen to 20,000 miles. Easy. And that doesn't include rental cars, which is a whole different can of worms. So I've, I've logged a couple miles. And uh, I think about, like, it was just raining when I was out in L.A. last, right? So I, I was in Fresno as the storm came in over the mountains, and then it rained for, like, seven days. And I came over the hill between Bakersfield and the north side of L.A., and there's all the semi-trucks, and the if you've never driven through the mountains, there's, like, the, the, the runaway ramps, and it's hard to see because it's downpouring. I'm white-knuckling it, and I'm pretty good at driving, Right. Not perfect, but man, construction next door, <laughs> hammer drill or something. But uh, but but I I don't envy training that model, right? And and how do you validate that without just putting it in a giant shitstorm? Like that's tough. Well, and that's where I, some of these some of the benefit that some of these car companies have is that like they're not just getting driving hours because of you, but they're, they have this whole network of essentially every car that's in this mode is reporting back. That's a good point. Sure. So, I mean, so you at scale can collect hours like that in theory. Sure. Cause they've shipped a million cars. So that means for every hour I drive, they get a million hours worth of data. Yep. Yeah. It's fair. Yeah. So, but like, yeah. Are you doing a million hours of validation with that or like, and I, I have no insight. I don't know. I have no yeah. idea. Um, but I don't know. Like, there, there's no way that I'm aware of that you could validate every minute of driving, every second of, you know, anomalies and what have you, you know. Yeah. You need a big computer. A real big computer. Big computer. I used to know a guy that worked at Cray. He could probably help us with that big computer. <laughs> His job was to write power supply firmware. And uh, powering up 
however many chips at one time without browning out a power supply apparently is an art form. So <laughs> it's not just brute force. Well, they're, yeah, they're, I have a, I have a whole set of friends too that are later in their career. And some of the stories they have from the beginning of their career is stuff like that. Or even yeah. before that, where it's just pure brute force. Like yeah. we didn't have the instruments to tell us really what was happening. So we, you know, did our best, our best guess at it and then overbuilt it and it still works today. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and one of the things we talked a little bit about over launch was like PID tuning, right? What a PID loop and what real time means to me with a robot and motion control background is very different than what that means to you. And they don't auto tune the same. Nope. Not even close. Like what's your definition of real time? <laughs> Well, in the process industry, I mean, you're half second. Right. In that, you know, maybe a quarter second if you're flying. But most <laughs> of, I mean, most of my stuff's at a second, you know. You're, right. A giant right. tank is not going to have a dramatic difference in a second. Right. For a tank level. Right. Um, you know, there are other, there, I could come up with instances in which that matters. For but, sure. You know, what's, a, what's normal real time and sub millisecond right <laughs> like when when you're doing position loops and things it's it's down at that you know microseconds kind of level yeah it's it's small really small yeah so p so pid so proportional integral derivative yes uh, and this is the like like this has been around since controls have existed essentially like controls are built on this algorithm yeah yep and um and so it, it's interesting because you can we can put a lot of smarts on top of controls, but at the end of the day, it comes down to some of these like basic fundamental things, like like did you tune this loop accurately? Right. Um, and that in and of itself is an art form um, because there are weird, just along with this conversation, like there are weird things even with this basic loop. Um, there was one I had in California where. I was I was adding a chemical and it would take an hour before I would see the change of the chemical I just added. So there was Holy an, cow. an hour of dead time. Holy cow. Okay. So this would have been a good case. We didn't, but this would have been a good case for like MPC, like we talked about last time. Like model, model. predictive control. Mm -hmm. Yep. But you can you can in this case detune a PID so that it you know, takes that hour of dead time into consideration so that it doesn't wind up and do all this crazy stuff. Yep. Um, or you can run the same thing at sub millisecond to position a whatever, position a robot arm or whatever right. you're trying to put do. a label on a bottle. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like what you highlighted there between the, the MPC and, and some of the other stuff, right? Like we used to build big cranes and I actually helped a uh, agriculture company move a building once. So instead of like the, the Arizona Cardinals move the grass in and out of the stadium, we effectively moved the pole barn on and off of the plot. <laughs> Simulate drought, right? Starts to rain, move the roof. Okay. Well, two drives, right? Master follower. How do you not tear a building in half, right? So it's an interesting problem. And, and a lot of times, like, I know in a, in a Rockwell platform, you'd say, okay, create a, 
virtual axis in the middle and then drive the other two off of that in unison and effectively they'll follow in, in harmony. That's a trick I learned after this. So what I did is I just said, hey, look, I'm going to put one VFD here. I'm going to monitor the other position. And I didn't have the built-in motion control tools to do all this stuff, but instead of using anything fancy, no crazy PID, it was just a basic multiplier. Like, okay, I know I don't want to be more than X number of inches out of square. So if you start to see that following error between the two creep up, just multiply your velocity command by one point, whatever the delta is, right? So the bigger it is, the faster you go. And it, you create a little bit of this crab walking thing, but it doesn't matter at scale, right? But again, super, super simple solution to the problem. You could have thrown all the king's horses and all the king's men at it, right? Like, And that was part of where we were talking earlier is where do you... Where do you draw the line of over-complication and over-application? Well, and that's, I don't, I don't have an exact answer for that, but I can tell you that like something like a PID has more functionality in any platform, on any, on any control platform, um, to solve a lot of these problems that I think sometimes we're quick to like, okay, we need a cloud-enabled edge, whatever, um, when like, like the feature I'm thinking of is like PIDs have this thing called feed forward. Sure. Um, so in process land, if I know I'm going to start increasing my flow because my pressure is going down over here, I can, I can feed that pressure into my PID. So I I'm like, Oh, okay, well that, that pressure is going down. You know, that means I better start hiking up my output here because it, I'm going to start running out. Right. So, I mean, and there's all sorts of like functionality like that, that are built in to, to solve really difficult problems. Um, I mean, all of which just get into the super, like super deep level of, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you can, you can solve some really complex things with the tools that are right in front of you. And it's just, For sure. and this is, uh, I mean, this is interesting. Like it's, that's some of the stuff that I really liked about. So I, I've spent a, a good portion of my career migrating like legacy control platforms. And so um, the, the thing that's nice about those is that they, they were a box. Uh-huh. Like you could have seven of these and eight of that, and that was it. And you could come up with any creative thing to get them in and out of that. Uh, but that was your limit. Like you had a box. Sure, sure. Um, so part of what that incentivized was that you really had to know how your system worked. So you needed to know all the features that were built in. You needed to know the exceptions. You needed to know all of these things. Um, and that's where you could, if, you know, for some reason you had an application that didn't fit, you knew the system well enough that you could make it fit because you could use. Kind of manipulate the innies and outies or put a timer on one of those signals or whatever, right? Yep. So like for one of the legacy platforms I'm thinking of, um, it passed a value and then a status with it. But you were limited by the number, you, you had 16 inputs and 16 outputs. And so if you wanted, if you wanted more than that in a single control strategy, you, you didn't have any options. Like you had 16 in and 16 out. So what people would do is they would strip off the status 
and then replace it with other inputs. So you, ah. so you had 16 bits of a, you know, whatever your main value is, and then you had 16 bits of status. So that meant you had 16 additional, you know. Got you to 32. Yep. Now, super, clever. super clever, also super terrible to go try to, like, troubleshoot. <laughs> but, I mean, it all comes back to, like, that's when you know how the system works, you can make it do what you need it to do. Do you think that's true with code, though, too? And, and, and I know I'm guilty of this, right? Like, when you... When you started, and I, I started programming, my first PLC was a GE 9030, right? And it had a fixed amount of registers or a fixed amount of Booleans. Um, I think about other things where, you know, memory was a constraint, right? Where that was that was it. What you got's what you got. I wonder, as we've gotten more and more horsepower, I know myself... I've gotten lazy and I've written some terrible inefficient stuff. Like, do you think that's part of why the, the computers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Like, do you think people are writing shitty code just like I write shitty code sometimes? Yeah. Yes. Like, for instance, like if you like, and maybe it's just a weird, I don't Maybe it's, a, again, one of those, like, generational things. But I, I also started in a – I think the first thing I touched was, like, a PLC2 or something. Sure. So, and that was early enough in my career that I was the, the manual translator from out of Octal. <laughs> <laughs> so a guy, the guy I was working with, he, like, literally just printed out a ream of paper and said, you know, convert these. Sure. And I was – you know, 20, nothing. Yeah, so I yeah. didn't know there were tools or anything. So I just sat there for a week and, dee, 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 you know, yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. The, so all of that and that, that's sorry. That's where I was going. So all of that completely relied on me understanding like the data types or sure. how the numbering worked or what sure. the size was or, um, because there was a fixed amount of things that I could put in the box. Mm -hmm. And so you had to be real careful with the things. Um, whereas mm -hmm. like today, like, okay, well, new parameter. Well, it's a dent. Like, yeah. how big is a dent? I don't know. It's it just, just goes into RAM. That's what it is. Like, right. I don't care. Well, do, should I use a, a short integer or a bool? Nah, just make it a dent. It'll be fine. Like, right, right. And you have so much room for that kind of like error that, you know, yeah, you don't, you don't have, by the time today that most people care about that stuff, you have a really big problem. For sure. Cause like the, when you hit that today, like you are, you're like at the edge of the system capability, in which case you're going to have to redo a lot of stuff to, to fix that problem. Do you remember the old timers and the way they overlapped in registers? Oh Yeah. Because I know in like the GE platform, they took up three. And so if you didn't start at every four, like you'd get this overlap and all these weird results. And you're like, what's going on? Yeah. But I haven't, number one, I don't write much code anymore. <laughs> uh, number two, I haven't thought about that in a long time. But you're right. It's, uh, it's a little bananas. 
and I wonder again, coming back to AI, like is AI going to write efficient code or shady code? I mean, I guess it just depends on what you trained it. Like, <laughs> don't train it on Justin <laughs> Go. <laughs> oh man! So we had done a. Did you ever hear the the move or the copy statement joke that the boys in the lab made fun of me about? <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll tell this one because it is kind of comical. So I had worked with a customer. I don't know. Let's call it five years ago. Might have been a little sooner than that, but on a demonstration unit for going to pack expo. And at this point, like my job wasn't super technical. It was very much piece of sales. And I was like, you know, what? I just want to dust off the keyboard a little bit. And so I started writing a routine and I needed to move a bunch of data. And I started out, I'm like, okay, copy command, copy command, copy. And then about halfway through writing and I went, oh, I could have done this in a for loop and made it way simpler. <laughs> But at that point, you're already half pregnant. You're like, well, I just I'm going to keep doing it. And I remember one of the guys here, uh, Corey, who we've had on here. He's uh, he went through my code. and He's like, dude, what? Have you ever not heard of a for loop before? <laughs> so, again, if chat GPT wants something good to study, I got some good move commands up there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I had a. I had a similar deal where a coworker and I were, you know, in charge of the programming for the plant. And so we'd, we'd finish writing something and test it and everything. And one of us would look behind our shoulder and go, you know, whatever the opposite was. So if it was written in ladder and like, oh, well, bet you can't do that in function block. Oh, sure. You know, and like, no, oh, bet I can. And then, you know, you'd spend a couple <laughs> more days. Yeah. Well, and that was another debate that came up recently was, you know, hey, why, why can't your automation controller run Python or why can't it run C++ or whatever? Pick your pick your favorite programming language. And it dawned on me as I, I kind of sat back so recently, and I don't know if you saw it, but I recycled all of my old programming books. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Dated 2003. Definitely not valid anymore. So I was like, okay, I, I'll part ways with these. But I start to think like Python wasn't a thing when I learned those, right? Like it was at the time VB6, C Sharp, .NET had just come out, right? C++ was still a gold standard in a lot of it. Um, Pascal was kind of dying out. It was still relevant in some of the robot stuff, but things have changed, right? And then I remember, I don't know, it was around 2012-ish. Remember Ruby? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're writing your interface in Ruby? Is everybody <laughs> Ruby on Rails? You're using Ruby, right? Ruby? And now it's oh, Python? ASP? Like, everyone wants to pick these flavors, and I think, okay, so automation equipment sometimes runs for, what, 30 years, 50 years, give or take? Are any of those languages going to be around in 20 years? I I don't know. We left hook this turn pretty hard. Like there was an e-brake and an anchor <laughs> thrown overboard and we just button hooked it. But I think it's it, it kind of fits in this whole dialogue, but I don't know which of those things come out ahead, right? And people are always like, oh, ladder's dead. Ladder, ladder's dead. 
Nobody knows that anymore. I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. As long as people are reading electrical schematics, you're, you know, <laughs> probably going to be relevant for a while. Well, and, and the other thing, too, and this is where, and you and I have talked about this. We talked about it over lunch today a little bit. And, again, we both work at Rockwell, Allen Bradley, right? It's no, no secret there. Um, we've both programmed other things in the world. And, and dare you say, hey, program this and, and brand Z, here's the manual or here's the help file, probably figure it out. So I guess I, on one hand, I'm like, eh, those languages won't be here. But I guess on the other hand, you make the argument, so what? Right? Like, Yeah, because we, it, I mean, it sounds like we had a similar kind of pattern because I have a whole, I have a whole box of the same programming books, actually. Yeah, and we've tinkered with Raspberry Pis and yep. Arduinos and... But when I was when I was in school for computer programming, like uh-huh. at some point I realized, oh, this is just syntax. Like totally, the language doesn't matter. It, it's all about my ability to problem solve. That that is the relevant piece of this. So I can sure. I can do it in C sharp. I can do it in C plus plus. Like it doesn't. At the end of the day, the problem I'm solving is the important part. The rest of it is syntax. Right. So. So yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I think I think that's a difference in how some people approach some of these problems. Is that like if you marry yourself to a single platform and don't ever look at how the rest of the world does it, mm-hmm. um, I think you can get yourself stuck because you'll eventually be doing it the hard way when everybody else is doing it easier. So sure. So back to what you were saying, um, why don't we program all of this in assembly anymore? Because <laughs> no one can read assembly except for compiler nerds. Well, so I think it's some of that same thing. Like, sure, a lot of these languages are going to stick around forever because they're buried in specs and what have you. But yep. yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere down the road somebody writes a Python deal where... Like, okay, well, I can dump this out to whatever brand of PLC I want, but I'm going to write all the config in Python, and it's going to spit out a config I can import into my programmer of choice. And and to be fair, in the machine tool industry, it's already been doing that, right? So you you download MasterCam or whatever CAM software you're using, right? And, And 3D printers are kind of the same way. You tell it, here's my part, generate me a tool path. And so it goes out and creates all the points. But then how it exports it, you say, give me a post processor. So that's the thing that takes the geometric data and converts it to a command that a machine can follow. And you tell it here, you know, I'm using a Mitsubishi controller. I'm using a FANUC controller, whatever that CNC is. And it does translate it, right? And I would say... I mean, we have a tool that does something like that called Application Code Manager. Yep. So at its core, it wants to output data to Studio 5000. I don't know of a technical reason that you couldn't also output code to Connect Components Workbench, mm-hmm. which is our other development tool, right? It it might not be done today, but it, it's just translator, right? Totally. So yeah, you could do that with actually... I had done GE PLC code out of a spreadsheet, and I shouldn't even take credit for it. I used it, one of my smart guys, when I was at 
Westinghouse had created this thing. But it would go through and write a bunch of mnemonic instruction list stuff based on what you typed in the cells, and then you could copy and paste that into the ladder editor, and it created all the ladder. Well, and this is, I mean, this is some of the programming joke, right, is do you want a smart programmer or do you want a lazy programmer? Because a lazy programmer (laughs) (laughs) will spend 12 hours automating a 15-minute task. (laughs) Well, the the lazy programmer is going to find the most efficient way to do it, I guess is where I was Sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, you can be, yeah, you can over whatever all of these things. That's, That's where, that's this whole other piece that I think is really unique where, like, you can, you can automate and try to take into account every single piece or you have to be kind of clever with how you're doing all of this. So, you know, do I take everything into account under the sun or am I clever enough to like, okay, well, if it stays within this box that I looked at all the data and came up with 98% of the time, I'm going to get you the right thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Man, we left turn there pretty heavy. Oh, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to create a show name based on this uh, <laughs> this soup. It, it's awesome. Like, I'm, I'm having fun, but I'm just like, oh, man. I thought that my last show name was clever. I I don't know if many people picked up on that. I don't think that. anyone picked up on that. And doubly, no one sent us an email. Send us emails. Also, if you have topic ideas, send those too. Because... We need some topic ideas. Otherwise, you get a lot of random thoughts. I mean, so I did have a buddy of mine. He goes, hey, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm like, cool. He goes, yeah, I heard you got one. So then I started listening. I'm like, cool. He goes, do you spend a lot of time post-processing? Because it sounds really good. I'm like, no, 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 just a good microphone. That's it. 30 seconds and we're done. It's like, oh, we... Maybe I should do one. I'm like, yeah, just do it, man. Just do it. So that's uh, that was my other random left turn. But also, if I could automate that post-processing even more, that'd make me happy. And there's there's probably a company that does that already. Yeah. It's just, you know, it all comes down <laughs> for all of these things. It all, right. it all comes down to time and money. So... Well, and that's another interesting one as I look at, and this is actually super relevant. So when when we built, excuse me, too much Red Bull carbonation, uh, when we would build machines, that was kind of the premise was like, look, I can build you whatever you want, right? And all of these problems that we've been talking about and, and what we've automated, like, None of this is new. Like, I think back to the painting robot. Like, we could have solved that before by putting a, a big yellow robot or a big gray robot on a cart and move it around. Yeah, we'd have needed some extra safety scanners. Like, there's some challenges to it. But by and large, not rocket science. We've been painting cars with robots for 50 years. So the question boils down to what you just highlighted, time and money. Like, what's it worth to you? Because we can apply brain power to this problem. Are you willing to pay for it? And I wonder, is that where we're starting to see the, 
as labor's gotten more expensive, scarce, can't find it? Like, is that, I feel like maybe that's been driving the, the equation in a very different manner from an ROI standpoint. Sure. Like, and I see videos and, it, and it's always funny because it's always the safety people. And I'm not joking, safety's important, so I'm not, I'm not trying to make that sound. But it's like, oh, look at this thing that came out of Asia where it's, you know, a person with a hammer pounding a cap on top of a bottle. Oh, look at they're so close to that conveyor. What if they fell over? Yeah, I get it. It might not be the safest. They might not follow the same standards. But also, what a meaningless, terrible job. But labor's free or nearly free, right? Or it was. And, and, and I think some of that equation's changing too. But I don't know. It, it, it feels like it's all boiling back into that same over and under on what fits to automate. Well, then that, I mean, that's some of what some of these, some big corporations play with, right? Is that in order for me to make something in the USA, there's a whole set of safety standards I need to follow and, yeah, you know, all sorts of everything. Like there's 17 branch topics off what I'm saying. Sure. Or I can, I can go somewhere else and not have to deal with any of that. So it gets into this like, and not not that I advocate or agree with anything of what I just said, but it does ultimately come down to this, like, can I afford to make widgets wherever I'm trying to make them right. and still remain as a company and, and a profitable company? Yep. And that was, um, that was something I really struggled with early on in my automation career. And it, it was part of... Part of that was because at the first place I worked, um, we were we were building a plant right next door to an existing plant. The new plant was going to have a like fractional number of people sure. versus the hundreds of people that were in the building next door. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, for the first ten years of my career, I just really struggled with like, man, like this is this is terrible. Like automation is taking all these jobs and whatever. But I, I sat down with, you know, of course, this CEO who had a different perspective of this. He's like, look, if, if that company did not invest in a way to make their product cheaper and more profitable, everybody loses their job. Right, because they have to offshore it. They have to offshore it, or the company just doesn't exist. Sure. Like, at the end sure. of the day, I, I mean, you, you're probably here for free because you love it so much. Totally, um, Yeah. But I mean, everybody else like wants to get paid for working and, and every company that exists other than a nonprofit exists because they want to make money, you know? So even if you follow the dollar trail at most nonprofits, somebody's getting paid. I wish there was a sidebar. (laughs) The margins with all the red ink. Well, (laughs) sidebar on the sidebar. But like, I wish there was an, a visual indicator of like how narrow a road we skated on. Like we were all over the place today, but yeah, on all of these topics, there were like seventeen other stickier topics that would just be right in the ditch that we avoided. So I'm going to give us a point for for that. Yeah, no demerits, no demerits today. Yeah, um, we haven't we haven't turned off the big red button yet though. So well, 
we're coming up on like nine minutes left at max, so we're we're getting close. I, I'm confident we can keep her on the rails ish. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah. like if that's that's the driver for all of this, right? So if you're not making money, why why do you exist, right? As a company, um, another whole philosophical conversation <laughs> there. Um, but I mean, that's that's some of the some of the driver here like it same thing with safety if you're if your company like if this is the problem they had at the early earlier you know 100 years ago like if you went to work and would die you're not going to be able to hire people for a lot of eventually because right. eventually like there's not enough like if the risk is that you're going to die every day you go to work yep why there's no amount of money to take that risk at totally. some point totally for some people maybe i'm sure but mm-hmm. you know what's it so so again i mean that's how like all the safety stuff came into play like okay well these working conditions and the things that i'm starting to do are so bad that somebody should care because they don't you know i don't know well and i wonder too and, and this again definitely not a reflection of where we work or what we do for a day job. But I look at things like power strips, light switches at home, right? And when you look at the box, the 5,000 different certifications that are on that box. And now knowing what it costs to run some of those products through all the testing, I get why a hundred years ago things like UL were created, right? Because oh yeah, information didn't travel fast. Earlier today, I'm in the shower and I get a news alert that you know our president's meeting in Poland live. Would you like to tune in? I'm like, I had no idea, but cool. I wonder as these products now again, if somebody gets a bad product, that that word spreads so fast. Whether or not it was the product or the application, it's it's bad news, right? Like, you think about all the um, the EV batteries that were starting on fire. Well, I bet all those batteries met all the NTSB certifications, right? Like, we met the standard. Oh, you off-roaded in your EV and hit a rock. <laughs> oh, well, it wasn't meant for that, right? So, like, part of me says, I, I get why these standards exist, but also I wonder... Are we at a, a, a information age? And this is more of an existential philosophical question. Like, should they still exist? That's a tough one because I think it's when we're on this side of everything has a certification. Yeah. You know, whatever. I think it's it's easy to forget all of the bad that comes with not having them. Sure. Um, and I'm not. I'm just going to play the other side of this. I, I haven't decided what I agree with yet. But, Fair. Um, but on the flip side of that, like there are unfortunately still a lot of people in the world that if I could make a surge strip that only four out of the five things worked. Fair. But it looked like it had five. Yeah. You know, I think that's some of the, like some of the junk I buy on various online retailers. Like, yeah. Like, is this a legitimate thing or am I getting a box with a brick in it that has the correct weight 
but right. So, I mean, until we can figure out how to get rid of all those sort of situations. Valid. Yeah. Now I, I also wonder too, like, so there was a pallet of gummy worms on Alibaba one time and I was like, man, I should order a pallet of gummy worms. But then I was like, I don't need a pallet of gummy worms, but you start wondering like, okay, I'm shipping these in from who knows where is there mercury in them? Right. Like, is there like, like you, you're right. I, I think the, the online retailer space is the wild west. Um, and, and we've noticed that during these supply chain constraints, right, with counterfeit products. Hey, it looks just like a real product. It's got a sticker on it. Hey, it even turned on. We flashed it. Ooh, and now it doesn't work anymore. Like, hmm, that serial number doesn't match, right? So there's, I, I see both sides, but, man, I feel like sometimes there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Or, like, have you ever got a thumb drive that was supposed to be 32 gigs and it ended up being four? No. <laughs> Is that a common? Yeah, there's like, that's another problem wow. with like buying like hard drives and stuff online. Sure. Is like, okay, I got a two terabyte, whatever. Well, it's really just, it's a 500 gig drive that somebody figured out sticker. how to have it report two terabytes. Uh, and so when you go to write a file that's bigger than it's space, no it just do. goes poof. Oof. It reminds me like, yeah, it's a slippery slope. As I say, back back when you know Napster and you could download, you know, pirates. You could download a car. You could download everything, <laughs> <laughs> but you always ran that risk of whether or not your PC was going to start up the next day. Um, and again, younger Justin playing video games that didn't have dollars went, "Oh, cool! I can download the latest game and check it out." How come my computer's only running at a third the speed now and the fan's overheating? Like, Well, and I, and I remember, so yeah, this was a long time ago, but I remember trying to convince my mom to give me her credit card so that I could buy some software on eBay. <laughs> like, and this is 30 years ago, right? Sure, like, sure. Um, but I mean, there's like, oh, well, you know, this product, they have it for $20 and it's, this guy burned it on a CD or whatever. Right. And like, that was so new that there was somebody taking advantage of the fact that they they knew the technology more than everybody else did, and then was taking advantage yeah. while they could. Oh yeah. Um, so I, you know, end of that story. I didn't get the credit card. Actually, <laughs> I'm but, sure not. Which was the right oh. which was the right choice. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that that might be our official last fork in the road for today. Again. I don't know how I'm going to summarize this up, but it was fun as always. Um, anything else you want to close at before I hit the button? No, we're, uh, I think we've exhausted all the topics for today. So, and I hope we didn't offend anyone. I don't want to offend anyone <laughs> on that note. We're out of here. Thanks. And that's a wrap for today. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed your time with us, please like and subscribe. Keep the letters coming to automationadvocates at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. The opinions in this show are ours and not representative of our employers. While normally polished, occasionally we might slide off the rails and into the ditch. Forgive us for that one.